Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive. And do not bring us to the time of trial. This is the word of the Lord. Luke's Gospel is one of the synoptics, so named because Matthew, Mark, and Luke look a lot alike. John's Gospel, quite different from the other three. Luke tells us specifically in beginning his Gospel that he is aware of others who have written before him and that he has researched all of them. Scholars believe that Mark, Matthew, Luke all worked in a separate place And yet, Matthew and Luke both had Mark's gospel in front of them as they wrote. Matthew is trying to convince Jews that Jesus was greater than Moses. And Luke is trying to convince Gentiles that they too are children of God, Israel's God. Matthew and Luke, scholars believe, had another source in front of them, Germans first tried to identify this and use the word quella, a source whose origin we do not know, we have never found. There is a gospel according to St. Thomas that was found some years ago in the Coptic church in Egypt, which is, has nothing to do with what Jesus did next and where he went, just a book of teachings. They think the quella was like that. Because Matthew seems to be choosing some parts and leaving out others, and Luke picks other parts and leaves out some. Matthew has a sermon on the mount. Luke has a sermon on the plain. Luke's account is about a third the length of Matthew's. Both of them have this prayer, but Matthew includes it in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke puts it at this point when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Matthew's version of the prayer has seven petitions. Luke says only five. But indication that they are, in fact, both looking at the same document in different places is the fact that in that line about our bread, a word is used that appears nowhere else in the New Testament and has never been found in any classical Greek writing. Now, some of your neighbors will tell you, well, that's because they all heard Jesus say it. But remember, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Matthew and Luke are writing in Greek. It's not an Aramaic word. It's a Greek word. So for them to have a word that is so remote, so rare, and both of them have it right there by the word bread, lead scholars in this place and in others to believe they both had a document in front of them they were using to tell their version of the gospel of Christ as they thought their audience needed to hear it. Let's take a look. Five things here. Number one, in the very first line, Jesus taught the disciples that God sometimes seems very near and sometimes he seems very remote. Dr. Joseph Fitzmaier says, the word Abba is a child's word in Aramaic. 
It's a word that little children used when they were going to speak to this most important man in their lives in the most endearing term they had. Father, Daddy, Papa. I've told you that a few years ago I was having lunch out at the Zara campus, attending a meeting there. Member of the Jewish community on one side of me, member of the Jewish community on the other side of me. We're eating our meal when suddenly one leans over me to say to the other, Did you hear that story about the kid who came running in the house and said, Abba, I didn't hear the rest of the story. Suddenly I said, They're still using this word after 2,000 years of a child using this word to speak to his father, his daddy, his papa. The Hebrew scriptures do refer to God as Father, but we have no instance before the time of Jesus of anyone using this word to address God directly. Abba, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. As I speak to the Almighty, you may also speak to the Almighty. But the rest of that line says, hallowed be your name. Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson up at Princeton says, well, I prefer let your name be holy. Dr. Joseph Fitzmaier says, well, I prefer let your name be sanctified. Ah, sanctify comes from a Latin word, sanctus, which means exactly the same as our word holy. And these words all mean set apart set apart. You will not find observant Jews going to a football game this fall, seeing a kid fumble a punt and say, oh my God! They don't do it. And Christians ought not to see a quarterback throw an interception and say, Jesus Christ! Ought not to do it. That's not the way you use the name. The name is set apart as being extra, extra special because it describes the one who's bigger than all of creation. So scholars use one word, the eminence of God, coming from the Greek maneri, meaning to remain. That's when God seems really close. And they use the word transcendence, coming from Latin, meaning literally to climb across. God's the only one who can climb across all of creation. So in just a few words, a reminder, God sometimes seems close and sometimes he seems far away and remote. And then it says, your kingdom come. Matthew adds a little helper here in case you don't know what that means. Your will be done. Jesus has just had a conversation that we dealt with a few weeks ago where one very well versed in the Torah comes to Jesus, asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. Well, what is the Torah and your understanding of it? And the man gives exactly the same two commandments that Jesus gives when he's asked in another setting, what are the two greatest commandments? The Shema from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Eye Asher Eye, our Elohim is one. You must worship no other Elohim but him. You must love this one with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Oh, the second one's sort of like that. It comes from the scroll of Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All of the Torah and all of the prophets 
is in these two. When we ask the, for the kingdom to come, it would be when all of God's children would say, Hear, O people of God, God is only one. The only one. You must love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You must put yourself out of the center and put God and the other into the center of your life. You must put yourself out for the well-being of the other. When you do, the kingdom will be here. And wherever you do, the kingdom is here. There was a big article in the Norman, Oklahoma paper a couple of weeks ago about the Reverend Linda Harker, and it's been reproduced in Contact magazine, if you get that. Linda Harker, last year, was the first woman, Methodist clergy, ever in Oklahoma's history to be elected head of the clergy delegation to General Conference and Jurisdictional Conference this year. But Linda Harker didn't begin her ministry until she was almost 40 years old. She'd married a young guy in the Air Force. They had two children. She followed him, she and the children, wherever the Air Force sent him. After 20 years, he retired, and she decided, okay, now she could sort of build a life. She didn't have a college degree, so first she had to get a degree from college, and then she went on to Phillips Theological Seminary, now here in Tulsa. When that seminary moved from Enid, Oklahoma to Tulsa, they had no Methodist professor to teach Methodist doctrine, and half their students were Methodist, so I was asked to teach doctrine. Linda Harker was one of my students. She's done really well. She was on staff at New Haven Church here in Tulsa, then she was pastor at Faith Methodist, then the bishop made her a district superintendent for five years, and 14 months ago she was appointed pastor of McFarland Church in Norman, Oklahoma, and immediately became pastor of the sixth largest Methodist church in America, pastored by a woman. Sixth largest. She's capable. But her story is this. I grew up in a family that never went to church. On Sunday mornings, I'd see my neighbors going to church and Sunday school. My family didn't go. So one morning, I said to my mother, I want to go to that church down there. She said, help yourself. So she said, I walked down the street, and as I got close to the church, I saw a woman standing out on the steps. And she looked at me and said, well, hello, what is your name? And I said, Linda. And she said, well, Linda, I'm so glad you've come to our church. How old are you? And I told her, and she said, let me show you a classroom where you can meet some other people your age. And she showed me to the class. When it was all over that morning, this lady, whom I later learned was named Miss Leggett, said to me, Linda, I'm so glad you came to our church today. Next Sunday, I'll be standing on those steps looking for you. And the next Sunday, she said, as I started down the sidewalk, I saw her. She was waiting. And when I got close, she said, Linda, how are you? And she gave me a big hug. She said, do you remember where your classroom was? I said, yes. She said, okay, I'll see you later. When it was all over that day, she said, I'll be on the steps looking for you next Sunday. And the next Sunday, she saw me coming through her arms around me. And after a few weeks, I learned that this woman who loved me knew a God who loved me even more. A God who loved me even more. I came to trust that I was loved. And by the grace of God, I'm still trying to learn how to love others as God loves them. Next line. 
give us each day our bread. Now, it's translated daily here, but this is that unusual word. And so scholars struggle with, what does that Greek word mean? We have no other place we can reference it. What does it mean? What do we think Jesus was saying there? And the preponderance of scholars say, well, we think it means every day. Every day. It's a reference to that time in the wilderness when God provided manna every day. Other scholars say, well, wait a second. Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson at Princeton says, no, no, wait a second. I think this word looks sort of like another Greek word, and that looks sort of like another Greek word, and the word is necessary. Give us each day our necessary bread, or give us today the bread we need. Give us today the bread we need. And then he says, Luke has a great compassion for the common people. He says the common people follow Jesus. He has a great compassion for the poor. He knows there are so many followers of Jesus who are subsistence farmers, workers. They go every day to the marketplace in their little towns. They hope someone will hire them. If they get hired, they get one denarius. They can feed their family that night. If they don't get hired, their family has no bread. Jennifer Kovash is a Lutheran preacher. She grew up in a tiny little town up in Minnesota. She said there were about 70 people on an average Sunday morning at her little Lutheran church. But when she was a teenager, her parents heard about a big youth conference for Lutheran youth and asked if she'd like to go. She said she thought she would, and she went to this gathering. Now, down in this part of the United States, we don't have as many Lutherans, but in Minnesota, Wisconsin, where all those Scandinavians settled, the two biggest churches in every community will be Roman Catholic Lutheran. We Methodists hope to be number three. So when she got to this youth conference, there were 27,000 youth there. And she said, after hearing 70 people pray the Vater Unser, the Father Hour, she heard 27,000 people praying the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. It changed my life, she said. I couldn't believe that many people knew the prayer, could say the prayer, believe the prayer. I got home. I talked about everything that had happened every day. I'd start with first thing in the morning. I was telling my mom and dad, telling until finally she said, I just collapsed. I heard them telling aunts and uncles later, she talked and talked and talked. She didn't eat. She didn't, talk, she didn't sleep. She just talked and talked until finally she collapsed. And then she slept and slept and slept. Well, Jennifer has written a sermon for her congregation and says, I'm a mother now myself. And I know that I and those I love the most need to eat every day and they need to come apart and rest every day. And I pray, give me the bread I need today. Then the line, forgive us our sins. This word is the word hamartia. Yesterday in the Olympics, they were having archery. This Greek word means drawing the bow, releasing the arrow, and missing the target. Hamartia. To miss the mark. Those times when we didn't trust God with all of our heart, <clears throat> mind, soul, and strength. Those times when we didn't put the other in the center. 
Dominic Kovac has written that he grew up in high school, a very good athlete, one of the stars on his high school basketball team. He said, I didn't give nearly as much time to schoolwork as I should have. I was an athlete. That was for other people to do. I went off to college thinking I'd be a big basketball star. Before the first game of the season, the coach pulled me aside and said, Son, you can't make this team. I'm sorry. It was a whole different game in college, he said. I'd never met failure in my life. Never, ever. And it scared me to death. I finally decided, well, I'd study physical therapy. I'd loved weightlifting when I was a boy. So I studied physical therapy, got out, started my own health club in a small town. I was a good people person. I met people well. My club started to grow, met a young woman, married her. We had two little girls. But I was afraid of failure. I'd fail once. When I'd see my mom and dad, they'd say to me, Dominic, don't be afraid to ask the Lord to help you. My mom and dad took me to Sunday school church when I was a little boy, and then when I became a teenager, I didn't want to go. They didn't make me. I wish they had made me. They didn't make me go. They'd come home from church and say, Dominic, don't be afraid to ask the Lord to help you. So I'd ask the Lord to help me with my business. Help me with my business. Some people wanted to work out before they went to work. I opened at 4 a.m. Some people wanted to work out after they got through work. I was there at 8, 9 o'clock every night. 4 in the morning, 8, 9 o'clock at night. One night I got home, my wife and two little girls, already gone to bed, sound asleep, and I went into their playroom, and I saw all these toys that they had gotten for birthdays and Christmas, not one of which I had ever played with them, ever. And I started crying. I started sobbing. And finally I knew what I needed to do. I said, Oh, God. I've asked you to save my business. I need you to save me. Will you save me? And he changed my life. Number five, lead us not into the time of trial. And the scholars say this really has to do with abandoning God, abandoning Christ, falling away. The closer Jesus got to Jerusalem, the more left fell by the wayside till he finally said will you also leave me that's what this is about will you quit Brian Piccolo you remember him football player same age I was played for Wake Forest University uh, was the leading ground gainer that year his senior year at Wake Forest but pros looked at him said he wasn't quite big enough quite fast enough for them he finally walked on with the Chicago Bears made the team but Brian Piccolo had a great compassion for people. Never had the Chicago Bears had a black athlete and a white athlete share a bedroom when they were away from Chicago. He and Gail Sayers became best of friends. And then Brian Piccolo, after just four years with the Bears, was diagnosed with cancer. He had already metastasized. He was seriously ill. He was rushed to Sloan Kettering, operated on. Six months later, operated on again. He was dying. Gail Sayers went to see him in the hospital room and said to him, Hey, hey, you got to hang in there. You got to hang in there. And Brian Piccolo said, Oh, I can't quit. It's against the big rules. 